Okay, good morning. Welcome to week 10 of our being scattered together. Uh, trust God is holding you and sustaining you in this time. Continue to miss you and pray for you. Let's uh, take some time in God's Word together as His people. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Look at this. We've made it all the way to chapter 5 now in Ephesians. Uh, it's only taken us months to get here. So uh, I'm going to read this for us. First 14 verses. This is what Paul says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light." For the fruits of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly and just ask God's blessing on this time, and then we'll dig into the passage here. Spirit of God, I'm just praying that you would come powerfully among us right now as we come to your word. We believe that you have inspired these words. We believe this is a living word. And God, as I've been asking week after week here, I'm just praying, God, that every heart would be opened, every ear cleared to receive and to hear what it is you want to say to us. Break down every obstacle, God, and, and speak powerfully to all who hear this message today. Again, not because of any ability or power that I have, but by the power of your Spirit working through your Word. Accomplish what it is you set out to accomplish today through this message, God. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I remember hearing a story from my father years ago about someone uh, driving their brand new Jaguar, it's a type of car if you didn't know that, driving their brand new Jaguar and parking it at Oak Ridge Center over there on Canby Street. And as sometimes happens in those places, when, when they came out from their time of shopping, they found that someone had backed into their car and, and damaged the bumper of the car. So already a bad day. But even more surprising than that, as the driver came around to get into their car, they noticed that there was a, uh, a note underneath the windshield. Now, normally, that, that's a note that you leave somebody when you've damaged their car and you're not there. Um, you know, this, if you didn't know, that's what you're supposed to do. You leave them contact information. You say, hey, I hit your car. Contact me here. But this note was not from the person that hit the car. This note read, Dear Sir or Madam, as a fellow Jaguar owner, I must ask that you either have this damage repaired immediately 
or take your vehicle off the road until such time as you can do so. Now, um, I can say with 100% certainty that driving the 2004 Toyota Matrix that I do, that I have never experienced this, nor will I probably ever experience this kind of situation. But if you could just get beyond the audacity of leaving a, a note like that on anybody's car, um, just let's think for a minute. Let's just think about what might, behind, what might be behind the intent of this person leaving a note like that. Like, I think if we were to see that person who did that in the best possible light, weren't they really just trying to communicate, look, owning a vehicle like this is something that the vast majority of people cannot do. And therefore, it comes with an increased measure of responsibility and saying that as an owner of this vehicle, you no longer represent yourself alone, but all Jaguar owners around the world. Which, listen, even if you don't drive a $100,000 vehicle, I think it's something that we can still understand to a certain degree, uh, particularly if, let's say, you've ever traveled with a, a school sports team or, or a choir or a music team and you've done it on a tour or something like that. What, what, are they, what do the teachers and the organizers do when you're about to head out on the trip? They gather everyone together and they say, listen, everybody, listen up. Okay, uh, this is a great privilege an honor to be going to this competition or whatever, representing our school. And as representatives, let me remind you that your conduct and behavior on this trip is no longer a reflection of yourself alone, but of the entire school, as well as the, the faculty and students. It's, it's virtually the same thing. Okay, so we're continuing in this teaching series through the book of Ephesians, uh, where the Apostle Paul describes for us God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth to himself through Christ. And, and people have, many have said that Paul's writing here on this subject is some of the pinnacle of his writing. But as we've said, and as I'm sure you've noticed if you've been with us through this series as we've made our way through the chapters, as Paul moves into these later chapters, chapters 4 through 6, his primary goal now here is to describe the implications of everything that he wrote about back in chapters 1 through 3. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, and I'm going to remind you again now, this is so important for us to remember, chapter 4 through 6, what Paul says there only applies if the uniting, reconciling work that Paul talked about in Ephesians 1 through 3 is something that's already true of you. This only applies if this is true. Like, like, that is like everything we've been looking at for the last few weeks, uh, walking in a manner worthy of your calling, uh, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, walking as children of light, which is what we're going to talk about in our passage today. All these things build out from and are directed solely towards the one who is already a child of God by grace through faith. That's something that's not true of you. Paul said, I'm not, I'm not referring to you. I'm not saying this to you. And if that is something that's true of you, Paul's saying, hey, I'm talking to you. But that order of things, like Paul's order, is something that's just so essential for us just to keep in front of us now for the remainder of this whole series as we go through this. We just need to keep this always in front of us, particularly because, man, even just a subject like salvation by grace, that's just something that we just continually struggle to accept and to really believe, even for the one who's been saved by it. We just can't seem to get our minds around this idea of our salvation being a free gift and not something that we have to work in order to earn in any way. I mean, it's, it's just exactly as the great reformer Martin Luther said, 
self-righteousness, it's just it's the default mode of the human heart. And so it just makes it so hard to accept this idea. And so here's the thing. We need to keep that order because as Paul begins to get specific about what the Christian life is supposed to look like in these last three chapters, that default mode, that, that works righteousness mode in all of us is going to continually want to drive you, want to drive me, want to drive everyone who, who, who hears these things to want to try and reverse Paul's order of teaching, to try and see that these, these behaviors that he describes in chapters 4 through 6 as the means of attaining the salvation that he wrote about in chapters 1 through 3 instead of the results that grow out of it. But the problem is that what Paul is going to address in our passage today is actually on the opposite end of the spectrum of this whole idea of salvation by grace. And What do I mean by this? What I'm saying is, so understanding salvation by grace from a legalistic perspective, so seeing uh, salvation as something that we can earn through moral conformity to a set of rules, that's wrong, that, that's not how grace works. But an equally wrong understanding of grace, on the other hand, is to understand salvation by grace from the perspective of license. That is, because I don't earn my salvation through my good behavior, that means I can now behave in any way I want, which is also wrong. That's, that, that's also not how grace works. It was a Canadian theologian, D.A. Carson, who said it this way. He said, grace is opposed to earning but it is not opposed to effort. And I think that's exactly the balance that Paul wants to help work to help us achieve or at least get closer to achieving in our passage here as he presses in deeper now on, on this new self-identity, what it looks like as well as the, what the responsibility involved for the one who truly has it. So why does this matter? Why, why is it so important that we know this, that, that we understand this? Well, Here's why. Because as those sitting in the infinitely privileged position as adopted sons and daughters of God, what that means for us, to, to use Paul's language from 2 Corinthians 5.20, is that we are now Christ's ambassadors. We're his representatives in this world. Paul says, as though God were making his appeal through us. Which means our conduct and behavior is no longer a reflection of yourself alone. It means somehow trying to find the balance between appreciating the privilege of a salvation that is not at all dependent on your behavior, on the one hand, while at the same time acknowledging that I can't behave however I want on the other. Trying to find a, a balance between those two things. And to help us find that balance in our lives, Paul wants to show us at least two things in our passage. He's going to talk about non-negotiable darkness and then enlightened expectations. Those two things. Non-negotiable darkness, enlightened expectations. So if you close your Bibles, close your Bible app, whatever it is, open it up with me again to this passage in Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me as we now learn together what, what this means to walk as children of light. Okay, so let's look first of all at non-negotiable darkness. Non-negotiable darkness. Now, if you look at the way Paul begins this chapter in verses 1 and 2 of this passage, he's giving these kind of broad, general instructions for Christian living, telling the Ephesian believers here to be 
uh, imitators of God and to walk in sacrificial love like Christ. It's kind of giving these broad principles again and then basing their motivation to live that way it's as, as working out of an ever-deepening understanding of their new self-identity as God's beloved children. Say, this is, this is why you should live that way. Now, there's a whole lot more that we could say about that, but for our purposes today, I want to just actually press on to what Paul goes on to say now in verse 3. So look with me there. Paul says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. What an interesting parallel. For you may be sure, verse 5, of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So now, if you think about that analogy that we began with this morning, talking about school trips, when you read these verses, it almost sounds like what Paul is describing is the going home clause that you often find on the permission slips that you sign for these trips. You know, this is where the kids and the parents agree in writing that if they are to participate, if they are caught participating in certain behaviors while on the trip, that's going to mean that they end up on the first bus plane or boat home, like your trip's all done if we're caught participating in these behaviors. Okay, it sounds like that's what Paul is saying here to these Christians. It sounds like he's saying, okay, yeah, you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you've been made new and adopted into God's family, made an inheritor of his glorious inheritance, but yeah, here's the thing. If you get caught participating in any of these behaviors right here, now your time in God's family is all done. You're, you're all bets are off. It sounds like that's what he's saying. Okay, but what that means is here already, already now we have our first occasion to remember what we said earlier about what he says in chapters 4 through 6, only applying if what Paul wrote in chapters 1 through 3 is already true of you. Because, just think about this, if your salvation is truly by grace, not a result of works so that no one may boast, like Paul said back in chapter 2, then isn't losing your inheritance as a child of God because of your behavior, isn't that the exact same thing as works righteousness? The, the default mode of the human heart? It, it is, yes. <laughs> Absolutely, it, it is that. And so that, that can't be what Paul is referring to here. Okay, so what is he referring to? Well, I think we get a clue as to what Paul is getting after here in verse 6. Look back with me there. What does he say? Let no one deceive you with empty words... For because of these things, all this immorality, uh, impurity, covetousness, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, so, so this is why I said earlier that what Paul writes here is actually dealing with the opposite end of the spectrum as it relates to salvation by grace through faith. Namely, this idea that because my behavior isn't what saves me, that means I can now behave however I want. This is what historically in the church is referred to as antinomianism. Because what Paul seems to be getting at here is that somehow, somewhere within the church, people of influence in the Ephesian church are suggesting to the people there that a beloved child of God, someone who has put on the new self, they can continue to be immoral, impure, covetous. They can continue to do all that stuff because, well, you're saved by grace and not by works. That's what they're telling them. And so Paul's response to them is his rebuke really is like, guys, no, no, like 
Those, those are empty words just meant to deceive you. Don't listen to those guys. Listen, you can be sure, Paul says, people who live in those ways have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And actually, God's wrath is coming against the world because of behaviors like that, among others. And so Paul's corrective to this church here is, listen, guys, don't even let such things be named among you. Don't even let such things be named among you. Meaning, as Clinton Arnold notes, not only that such things not be talked or joked about within the church, but, quote, that an outsider who observes the daily behavior of Christians should never have an opportunity to name one of these vices as characterizing the lifestyle of any member of the community. That's what he means by that. So Paul's plea to the church here is really, no, no, you're, you're not saved by some legalistic obedience to a set of rules. You're saved by grace, yes. But the grace by which you've been saved does not give you license to now just behave however you want. The implications of your new life in Christ, or, or the fruit of light, as Paul calls it down in verse 9, mean that although our behavior is not what saves us, as ambassadors of, in, of God in this dark world, our behavior still matters a great deal to God, actually. That's what he's saying. As Paul wrote, for instance, in Romans 6, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means, he says. Don't you know that if you, are, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But as we think about how to apply this into our own lives today, to begin with, you may be wondering, as we read these first six verses, why it is that Paul chose sexual immorality, crude joking, these kind of things. Why, why, why did he choose these things to write about to the Ephesian church? Like, why focus there? Is, is he trying to say that to God, these are the most important sins? Like, really, these are the ones you really need to avoid here. Others are, are still not okay, but these are the ones you really need to avoid? Or, uh, as he's saying, as some have critiqued the Bible, are, are we being taught here that, that God is just anti-sex, anti-humor, anti-fun, and just like the pinnacle of following Jesus is just to be as prudish, sour-faced, a stick in the mud as possible. Is, is that what he's saying? Well, uh, no. <laughs> I think uh, that's the first thing to say. No, that, that's not at all what Paul's saying here. God is, is not anti-fun, anti-sex. I mean, Jesus told us himself, John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And, and sex, like, if you didn't know already, that was God's idea. Like, he came up with that. Sex was God's idea, so he's not anti-sex. That, that was given to us as, as a gift to be enjoyed. But the answer, I believe, as to why Paul would focus on these sins in particular here, beyond the fact like sexual immorality being one of the evils that, that Jesus says flows out of every sinful heart, is that Paul wanted to address what he knew firsthand about the culture surrounding the church in Ephesus because of his years in ministry there. He'd been there for over three years. He knew exactly what Ephesus was like. He knew about just the rampant sexual immorality and Greco-Roman culture in general. Yes, but remember, he also knew that this place of Ephesus where the temple of Artemis was, he knew about the temple worship of Artemis in particular there in Ephesus, Artemis being a fertility goddess whose worship involved everything from temple prostitution to sexual orgies. 
I mean, the, the, the culture in Ephesus was just saturated up to the eyeballs with sexual immorality of, of every kind you can imagine. It was just sex everywhere you, you looked, which, of course, is something in our modern 21st century enlightened world that we have no understanding of whatsoever. <clears throat> okay, maybe we do. Uh, but, and what, what Paul's trying to say here is, guys, look, I get it. I, I know what it's like here. I know the cultural pressures you're facing. I know that sexual immorality is just built into the culture of Ephesus. It's just in the air there. But now, as, as reconciled, redeemed members of Christ's body, the church, which is the visible representation of the kingdom of God in the world, well, you need to live your life by a different standard now. Because your conduct and behavior is no longer a reflection of yourself alone. And, and that means whatever these guys are saying to you, you don't get to negotiate with God as to which sins are and are not allowed to continue to be practiced and, and to, for you to partake in as a child of God. You don't, you don't get to do that. All darkness, he's saying, is non-negotiable for the child of God. But I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you do this or not in your own life. Maybe this is just me because I'm weird. But whenever I read a passage like this in the Bible, I always read it at first with a little bit of like just fear and trepidation until I realize that it's not a sin that I'm currently struggling with. And then I just, oh, I breathe this big sigh of relief. Okay, I'm not doing that. As though like these are the only forms of darkness that must not be named among God's people. And so as long as I'm not doing these... God's just cool with any other forms of impurity or immorality that are part of my life. I, I don't know why I do that. It's so, so dumb. Or, or maybe you do this, too. Even if I know that God's not okay with these other sins in my life, just like those false teachers in Ephesus were suggesting, I, I, I still know because I'm saved by grace and not by works, I still imagine that I can negotiate my darkness with God somehow. That I can just be like, God, like, I know you don't like a lot of this stuff over here. I know that's not cool, but, you know, I'm working on it. And, and you know, some of it I actually kind of like doing. So here's what I want to I'm just wondering if we can come to a compromise of some kind. So I'll tell you what. I will give you road rage and lying. And you know what? I'm even going to throw in an extra 15 minutes of praying every day. Can you give me swearing under my breath and occasionally drinking too much? Like, is that, is that a good deal? I feel like I'm giving you more than you get. Like, is that cool? And it's just like... No, no. When the truth is, coming to a passage like this, if our conduct and our behavior as God's people is no longer just a representation and a reflection of ourselves, but also of God, what a passage like this is intended to do is to force you, to force me to, to really focus and look at my own life, look into my own present context and ask myself and be honest, what parts of my present culture could be named among me right now that should not be? What practices, what attitudes does my present culture approve of and applaud and say that's fine that are out of place as God's ambassador? What, what am I tolerating that God does not? N.T. Wright said it so well. He says, Paul has a way of cutting to the heart of the issue. Don't be fooled, he says. There are a lot of empty words out there. Words, that is, which sound big and important and echo and, and resonate in the culture, but which have nothing inside them. No life and no truth. Which means, listen, 
It's not to steal our fullness of life and steal our fullness of joy that darkness is non-negotiable for the child of God. It's because the works of darkness, they don't lead anyone to fullness of life. That's why it's non-negotiable. He wants you to have life, not to mention the fact that these are the very things that Jesus bore the wrath of God in order to free us from. All right, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading now the verses uh, beginning at verse 7 where Paul writes this. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So coming out of what Paul had just wrote about non-negotiable darkness, we see that Paul now moves into what we're going to call enlightened expectations. Enlightened expectations. I think it's really interesting to note, first of all, the motivation that Paul lists in verse 8 For the warning that he gives in verse 7 there, not to partner with or not to join in with the unfruitful works of darkness, as he calls it in verse 11, that these uh, false teachers were encouraging the Ephesian church to continue in. Telling them, look at verse 8 again, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Notice he doesn't say, at one time you used to walk in darkness, but now you walk in light. No, he's looking, he says, you were darkness. And now you are light in the Lord, which actually sounds very much like Jesus' words in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he says, you are the light of the world. That's what he said to us. And and I think what Paul is intending to teach us there by, by saying that is that it's not just our external behaviors that are transformed when Jesus saves us, but the, the very nature and core of our being. When Jesus saves you, you're transformed. You you were darkness, he says, and now you are light. What an incredible thing to think about. You are light right now because of Jesus. And then the overarching expectation that grows out of this renewed, truly enlightened experience is that they are to now walk as children of light. You are light, now walk as children of light, Paul says. Well, okay, what does that involve? What does that look like? Well... The results or the fruit of walking like this, as Paul calls it in verse 9, is found, Paul says, in in ways where we pursue those things in life that are good and right and true, as well as seeking to please God in every aspect of our lives. That's what it looks like. So you, you could say that walking as children of light looks very much like the description that Paul gave back in verse 1. Uh, a passage, uh, uh, verse 1 of the passage that Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message this way. He says, verse 1, like this, watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. But the aspect of walking as children of light that I want to focus on in particular with you for just a few minutes here is what Paul lists in the verses right after, in verse 11 and following. Look with me there again. Again, Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And when you think about how light works in relation to darkness, I think what Paul presents here through this is actually a really beautiful, but also a really challenging picture for us. It's beautiful because what Paul is saying is that the more our thinking is transformed, like we talked about last week, and and we come to to believe and really understand and are living out of our new identity in Christ, the more the light of Christ will shine in us and expose the unfruitful works of darkness still hiding there, still, still holding us back, both in our lives as well as in other people's lives, revealing them for what they truly are, unfruitful. Uh, lifeless, futile. It, it reveals them for what they are by exposing them, which if you think about it, is an incredibly helpful thing for our spiritual maturity and our spiritual growth because trying to figure out what's, what's blocking us, what's holding us back from becoming more mature is, is, is about as easy in doing that in the darkness is about as easy as finding a bathroom at night in a dark, unfamiliar hotel room. It's not easy to get there. You might get there eventually, but the darkness makes it almost impossible to find. So this is a really beautiful thing that Paul's describing here. It's exposing things so that we can deal with them and work through them. But it's also a challenging picture as well because, and I won't won't speak for you, but I just know in my own experience, if I'm being honest, I don't usually like having the unfruitful works of darkness, like all the sin that I'm hiding and trying to negotiate with God. I don't like having that exposed. Do you? I don't. I don't like having that, and it's, even, it's an even rarer person that you'll find who likes having you point out those things for them to expose them in their life. And people are like, uh, excuse me, uh, no, I don't want you exposing sin in my life. We, we don't like this exposure. I think Jesus said it best in John 3. He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And so, I mean, we really got a dilemma before us in in this picture that Paul gives us here. Because on the one hand, uh, uh, as children of light, we're called to to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. and, And we're seeing some really beautiful, beneficial results of that. But on the other hand, this is an action that produces resistance, even hatred inside us as well as inside other people. So what, what do we do? Which, which path do we take? Well, I think what we all need to understand in the end is this. If the light of Christ is truly in you and you are seeking to grow up in your salvation, exposure for children of light is something that's inevitable. It's inevitable. If... if, if you have the light of Christ in you, and you are light. If that's true what Paul says, then exposure for children of light is something that's inevitable. It's just, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in your own life whenever you're trying to negotiate or rationalize your sin before God. It's going to happen there, and it's going to happen in the lives of, of everyone that you come into contact with in, in your experience, your family, your, your friends, your coworkers. It's just going to happen. You may not even intend to be exposing anything in someone else. There's just going to be times in your family, in your workplace, where just the way you choose to respond or not respond, the way you choose to participate in something or not participating in something, will just by default expose unfruitful darkness in others. And as a result, 
They, they could respond in all kinds of ways. They could be resentful. They could be dismissive, even angry at you. It's not like you're trying to expose things, but just by the nature of you, not by you, you trying to walk as light, you're exposing darkness in others. And they're, they're going to respond in these ways. As, as John Stott notes, we may not wish to do this, but we cannot help it, for this is invariably what light does. Those consequences, yes, for walking this way. And I know, listen, to balance this picture out, I know that some people actually love this. They hear a command like this, and they look at it like a spiritual hunting license that just tells them they're allowed to go around now and just point out everyone else's sins, be like, look at how God told me to expose the unfruitful works, so I'm doing that for you. You're welcome. Like, that's how they look at it. I don't think that's at all what Paul is intending to communicate here. But the question this command does force you to need to be able to answer for yourself at the end of the day, you, me, and, and everyone, is this. Now that the light of Christ is in me and I am light, am I going to walk as a child of light? Or, like Jesus warned in Matthew 5, am I going to try and take that light inside me and hide it under a basket? Am I going to seek to conceal the light, take it off the lampstand? Will I walk as a child of light now that I am one? Because you think about it, the implications for like church body life, I mean, they're huge. Just imagine what a church filled with light-filled individuals who, who allow that light to shine into their own lives as well as into one another's lives. Imagine what the, that could mean for, for growth as well as effectiveness in building the kingdom of God when that's happening. Wow. But then at the same token, imagine... What a church filled with individuals who are hiding, who are, who are blocking out the light that others are shining. Imagine what that would mean for growth and effectiveness in building the kingdom of God. How we choose to walk is going to have great implications for how we live as the church. And actually, the implications are no less important as it relates to our witness, as it relates to our being our ambassadors to a dark world that we're living in right now. So I think about my own life. I can still remember in the past, as I was trying to work out where I really stood with Jesus, and I remember feeling, to my shame, I remember feeling glad. I remember feeling proud when people would express surprise when they found out that I was a Christian. I thought that was a great thing. And I thought it was great because I thought that what that meant was that I was showing people that Christians were cool. Christians were just normal people. Christians were people who were fun to party with. I thought that's what I was doing, but not realizing that what I was really doing was covering over the light of Christ inside me, if it even existed there yet, completely. I was hiding the light. I was covering it over. And the reason people were really so surprised when I told them that I was a Christian is because I was participating in all the same unfruitful works of darkness that they were. Teaching, really, really teaching by the way I walked, teaching by my witness, that following Jesus makes no difference in someone's life whatsoever. So you see, it's not just a good idea. It's, it's essential that we seek to not, not be perfect, but to walk as children of light. Because as his ambassadors, we're demonstrating what a transformed life looks like. Not perfection, but one that strives to be different, that strives to walk in holiness. It was Brennan Manning who once said this, 
the greatest single cause of atheism in the world right now today is Christians. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, is he overstating his point? Maybe. And no, do, do I, I, I don't think that people's eternal destiny is determined by the strength or weakness of my witness. I don't. I believe that, that this, that's a decision that is safely and, and very gladly held in the loving and sovereign hands of an almighty God. That he decides. He, so so I, I know that's true. But the fact remains that the Bible is still full of commands, not least of which we have in our passage here today, that we live our lives in this dark world in such a way that represents our Father best. As uh, John writes in 1 John, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Or as Jesus himself told us, let your light shine before others. Why? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It means how you live, how you love, how you shine matters. It really matters. Because our conduct and behavior as children of God is no longer a reflection of ourselves alone. And yet I wonder... I wonder if the radical individualism that has come to characterize our 21st century Western culture is not something that has also increasingly become named among us as God's church, such that we now see walking and, and shining as children of light. We see that as a, an optional activity that we can carry out if and when it suits us. May God help us. God help us as, as the light of this word today reveals that darkness in us. And may we receive it. May we welcome this loving exposure and then by his power that is at work within us, commit to walking differently from this day forward. To expose the unfruitful works of darkness both in ourselves and others, that, that as a church family, may, we may truly be a, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We could really be that as we seek to walk as children of light. And then, to walk as children of light in such a way that shines the best light possible on the one who made us light. <laughs> Amen.